Hi, this is Mark Ullman. I'm of counsel to Rivkin Radler LLP on Long Island, and I'm on the Big Mouth Pharmacist podcast. One of my biggest pet peeves with the supplement industry right now is the misunderstanding, misinformation out in the marketplace regarding CBD, which ties into another one of my pet peeves, which is quality and the attention paid by both consumers and industry to issues relating to quality. Welcome to the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast. I'm Neil. I'm the Big Mouth Pharmacist. I'm a pretty sarcastic, slightly unprofessional healthcare professional, a holistic pharmacist here to talk about everything wellness, weed, and Woodstock. We broadcast from the most famous small town in America, where I hold court as the town's family pharmacist who tries to get people off their medicines and onto a wellness program free of the BS and misinformation of the natural products industry. Oh, hello there. I'm Dr. Neil Smoller, holistic pharmacist and owner of Woodstock Vitamins. If you like what we've got going on on this podcast, which I assume you do because you keep listening, you should check out all the other cool stuff I write. So I write blogs and we even do a webinar once a month. It's all available over at woodstockvitamins.com. I need some help. I've got a little Twitter account that I set up for the Big Mouth Pharmacist and I could use some followers. So look me up over there at Big Mouth RPH, Robert Peter Henry, like registered pharmacist. Get some followers over there so that I can like really kind of start being super sarcastic because I think that's what you're supposed to do on Twitter. So we're quickly approaching our 20th episode and just wanted to pause and say thank you. It doesn't seem like a big deal, but uh, we have a lot of listeners and it keeps growing every week and it's, it's really great. So I'm having a lot of fun and I, I hope you're getting a lot out of the conversations that we're having. And today's conversation is really cool. Uh, today on the podcast is attorney Mark Ullman. And I know most people's gut reaction is to be like, ew, gross, an attorney. You know, the silly dad jokes that everybody says about attorneys. But Mark isn't that guy, you know. So Mark is of counsel at Rivkin Radler, which is a firm uh, in our area. But he represents those in the entire supplement industry that need help being legally compliant and dealing with the big guy, the FDA. Mark's an industry expert and thought leader, lecturing and writing frequently about FDA and compliance-related topics, especially current topics like our favorite, CBD. Personally, I'd use no other attorney besides Mark for anything supplement-related. I'm really proud to have him on my team. He makes me smarter every time I talk to him, like I learned a bunch today in our conversation. And so I'm glad that he agreed to come on the podcast, and I hope you can learn a lot about behind the scenes and, and the perspective of some industry thought leaders that have been doing compliance for as long as Mark has. So enjoy. So let's start out with a lighthearted general position statement. Mark, do you hate the supplement industry? <laughs> um, I make my living in the supplement industry. I literally, not figuratively, literally grew up in the industry. My dad, uh, Robert Ullman, was general counsel for the National Nutritional Foods Association, NNFA, going back into the 60s, throughout the 70s, through the vitamin hearings, through the passage of Deshay. And I, I remember as a teenager uh, going to the, and even younger, going to the NNFA trade shows in Las Vegas, working the registration booth. <laughs> um, I've got a long history, deep roots in this industry. I love the industry. It, it's, it, it's been a huge part of my life, and it's where I've chosen to make my career. Right. So, and this is the thing nowadays, like you can't be critical of something without seeming like you're against it. So I just wanted to set that up to let everybody know that you especially are advocating for the industry. And that's what I am too. You know, just because we talked about the myths and misinformation doesn't mean that we are against the industry in any sense. We want the industry to survive, to, to thrive. No, Neil, it, it's the, the notion that we are supposed to be in essence, or in your podcast is supposed to be an arm of the propaganda ministry that says the <laughs> supplement industry is perfect is so wrongheaded. Yeah. Um, because if we don't address any of these, these, these issues, one of these days people are going to get hurt. Yeah. And the fault isn't going to be with the rogue company that doesn't follow the rules. Um, the fault is going to be, the, the blame is going to be placed on the supplement industry, the irresponsible, unregulated yeah. supplement industry. You're not as old as me. 
Um, mm-hmm. But I'm sure you're old enough to remember El Tryptophan. Yes, of course. I th- let's just uh, frame it out for the uh, the listeners at home because a lot of people aren't into the nerdy stuff that we are. El Tryptophan was um, an amino acid. It was a popular supplement. I think we're going back into the late early 90s. I don't remember exactly when the incident was. But one of the manufacturers of this amino acid was Shoadenko, a huge Japanese pharmaceutical company. Mm -hmm. And they tweaked their manufacturing process. Uh, They thought they were making things more efficient. And what they didn't realize was whatever change they made created an unidentified substance, uh, subsequently known as peak E, because that's how it was identified when when the investigation started and, and people were doing HPLC, uh, you know, some an- analytics, and they were looking at the chromatograms, the pictures of what the uh, tryptophan actually look, looked like when you broke it down. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they made the manufacturing process more efficient. There was big demand for the product. They created this peak E, which turned out to cause serious, very serious, adverse health events, including in some some prominent athletes. I remember it was big news on Long Island because a couple of the Islanders and they were a real hockey team at that time. <laughs> you know, they're 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 having a bit of a uh, renaissance, but you know, this was back in the day when the Islanders were big news. And there were several ad- several Islanders who uh, had adverse events. A couple of them were forced into retirements, and there were even uh, there were a number of consumer deaths caused by this unidentified PK. And the industry as a whole was very lucky because uh, Shoadenko was a responsible company um, w- with very deep pockets, and they came forward and they said we messed up here. And we will make every one of our customers who has suffered damages because of this hole, and we will pay um, all of the damages due to consumers who are injured. But if we, we get into a situation where this problem is caused by, we have another similar in- incident, because the uh, tryptophan is the case study. It's the poster child. Uh, for what can happen if you don't thoroughly understand what you're making, if you have some kind of quality issue, um, people can get hurt. So now, what happens if we, and let's say CBD, because we've seen from FDA warnings about synthetic CBD popping up in the marketplace. So... I've heard about this. This is uh, basically Asian uh, sourcing, right? And they're using the K2 plan. Is that what's going on? I'm not sure of the details. I don't know if FDA is sure of the details. But there have been warnings about synthetic CBD in the, in the market. And I'm, I'd, I'd, be, I'd wager that there are multiple sources of, of the synthetic material. Yeah. Who knows what conditions it's made under? Who knows if there are proper controls that... Every time whoever's making it makes the same thing. Now, what happens if there's another pinky incident from synthetic CBD? And my rhetorical question for you and for for your listeners is, will the adverse events that are caused by, potentially caused by, a manufacturing problem with synthetic CBD, will those consumer injuries be depicted as being caused by the rogue company making illegal synthetic product, or will they be depicted in the mass media as being caused by the irresponsible, lightly regulated dietary supplement industry? The news articles write themselves. I mean, you can they state the problem and then they'll say, and the supplement industry, which is poorly regulated, and here's 95 different examples of all these times that these horrible things have happened. So yeah, absolutely. They're going to blame the entire industry and everybody's already gun shy about CBD. So imagine something like this comes to the market, somebody gets injured. Do you think CBD is going to flourish as it could and be as beneficial as it could? Or do you think it's going to get locked down super quickly? Uh, I think it's going to be a lockdown on CBD if we have consumer injuries. And I think it will be damaging overall to the supplement industry. Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's kind of take one step backwards in here. Like set the stage for everybody. So you're a lawyer that's involved in helping people do what in the supplement industry? 
the emphasis of my practice, 90% of what I do, uh, is in the dietary supplement, natural products, uh, food industry, and we focus on compliance. Our goal is compliance. Our goal is helping companies comply with labeling, claims, good manufacturing practices, uh, and be in a position that they have confidence in what they're doing. They have confidence in their products. Uh, it's easy to sleep at night, and they don't have to panic when they get a call from their receptionist that FDA is on site to do an inspection. Right. And then we also do, we, we deal with some sophisticated uh, ingredient issues. We deal with uh, assisting companies with new dietary ingredients and coming in to assist in situations where there is a problem, either with the FDA or the FTC, or even, God forbid, um, the United States Attorney's Office in whatever locality the client would be located. So you're acutely aware of what these problems are facing the industry, but most of your clients are the good guys, the ones that are trying really hard to do the right things. Those kinds of companies uh, you know, tend to be the ones who are willing to invest in compliance. Right. <laughs> Spending the money on the consultants and the, the legal uh, fees and everything like that is a big investment. And I've heard, uh, we were talking about CBD just a moment ago, uh, a company wanted me to sell their products and they said, oh, well, we can't afford to do the quality tests. <laughs> That's an immediate non-starter. And I'm sure you said, you know, um, I don't care what, what price you offer me your CBD at, I'm not interested. I swore at them. So that's how I roll. I just told them to F off. So, <laughs> um, all right. So let's talk about quality as a problem in the supplement industry. So you mentioned CBD as an example of one. We talked about L-tryptophan as another example. How big of a problem is quality in the supplement industry from your opinion? It's not as big as it was five years ago, mm -hmm. um, but it's still too big. We, we still see, uh, even under the current administration in Washington, where we, we see a notable decline in field activity uh, from FDA, we still see too many uh, agency reports of failure to comply with um, good manufacturing practices. I mean, that's really the tip of the spear when it comes to um, issues relating uh, to quality. And... We still see a lot of uh, issues on very fundamental uh, areas of, of non-compliance. Non uh, one that troubles me a lot is we still see manufacturers being cited for failure to identify the ingredients that are coming into their facility. There's very little testing specifically mandated in this very complicated uh, regulation from FDA, and it's yeah. complicated only in the sense that the, in the sense that there's a lot of room for interpretation. It's a very broad regulation, and a lot is left to the manufacturer's discretion. Um, yeah. But the one thing that isn't is you must test for the identity of every single, I'll call it active ingredient, so the, uh, our listeners understand uh, what yeah. I'm talking about, but every single active ingredient in a dietary supplement needs to be tested to make sure it is what it is, what, it, what it's supposed to be. And we still see failures at that very basic level, and it's troubling. And one of the problems that makes it challenging for the consumer, especially when they buy on Amazon or in uh, uh, some of the mass market stores, is... Compared to other industries, there's still relatively low barriers of entry into the supplement industry. Not necessarily as a manufacturer if you're looking if if you're doing what you're supposed to do, mm -hmm. but certainly somebody uh, in the position of a being a distributor, yes, um, who's not doing their own manufacturing or is somebody else doing the manufacturing for them. Um, there are very low barriers to entry. There are no licensing requirements, um, it's very lightly regulated by the states who are mostly interested in money that they collect at registration. Uh, so it's very easy to, excuse me, set up shop um, as a marketer, even of your own brand of products, without having any knowledge of what you're really supposed to be doing. 
right? I mean, that's me. Like I have my own brand of supplements and I have contract manufacturers and everybody's heads in the sand. I actually just wrote an article about this, about the responsibilities of own label distributors and how you walk into a store and they're supposed to have testing and proof that their products are what they say they are just as a default standard. And nobody's doing that and everybody's ignorant of it. And CVS now is bragging that they're doing this program tested to be trusted so that their products are what they say they are. And I say, big whoop, that's what you're supposed to do. It's a multi-layer f- uh, failure, uh, the, the situation, type of situation you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a failure of FDA um, to really effectively educate consumers and industry on what they're supposed to be doing. Um, it's a failure uh, in this instance. I would say on the on the manufacturer who is really uh, is subject to rigorous FDA oversight when they do anything, to, to say to its customer and 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 uh, you know I talk to my manufacturer clients about this all the time. You may need to I see I, I tell them you may need to educate a new company. You may need to say here is our quality agreement. And you'll probably get a lot of questions about why do you need this and what am I supposed to do uh, from your potential customer. And you say, look, if you don't understand that, you need to look at this agreement and it's a roadmap of what I'm obligated to do as your manufacturer and what you're supposed to do once you put your name on the product. Because now in FDA speak, you can magically converted yourself. And, uh, Neil, I think we had this conversation at one point. Oh, yeah, we definitely did. (laughs) You have magically converted yourself, once your name goes on that product, from a retailer, which is fairly lightly regulated by FDA, into what we call an own-label distributor, who is highly regulated by FDA. Because once you put your name on that label, you're saying to the world, I have the final say in determining whether this product is suitable for you to ingest, for you to put into your mouth to take the product, that it will do what it claims it will do, and do it safely. And there's nothing in the product that will hurt you, because my name is on it, you can trust me. And once you do that, you take a very big burden on, and in my experience, um... Even if we're talking uh, uh, health food stores, yeah. uh, retailers don't understand this, that significance. They don't understand the significance of putting their name on a product. Yeah, five to ten years ago, when the, before these kind of harsher interpretations of own-label distributors were so widespread and known to retailers, um, it, private labeling is what it was referred to as, and literally your only obligation was to make sure that you gave them the artwork, and you were just going to a contract manufacturer, and they were giving their proven or, um, uh, I guess, tested products, and just putting your colors and your logo on it. But now we have this view where you're a manufacturer in the FDA's eyes and a lot of people are waking up to this idea and it's a big turnoff because to have compliance, to have a relationship with consultants and lawyers and stuff like this, this is a very difficult thing. It can be difficult Mm -hmm. um, if you're getting proper guidance. Uh, It doesn't have to be burdensome. Right. And a point I make to a lot of my clients and when I lecture on this, and um, you, I'm certain, can to attest to this firsthand, Mm -hmm. once you get this kind of program in place, whether you're a manufacturer or what we're now calling an own-label distributor, but once you get this kind of pack, this program in place, you feel better about your company. You can sleep at night. You know things are being done the way they're supposed to be. You don't have any gnawing question in the back of your head. Is everything okay? Am I going to get a call uh, tomorrow morning from one of my customers that something bad happened? Yeah, it's minimum competency, but it's also best practices. So it allows your business to work a lot uh, simpler. So I I like the idea of it. I think it's something that people need to wake up to. So as a consumer, you were talking about um, what a consumer should be doing. So I want to touch on that. But first, we've said this term a few times. I just want to make sure my listeners on, on, on point with what this means. Good manufacturing practices. Can you tell me what that is and what that really tells us? Uh, Good manufacturing practices are exactly what those three words mean. 
um, but it, it is a regulation. It's found at Part 111 of uh, uh, Chapter 21 of the Code of Federal Regulations, and it is a roadmap. In essence, as you said, best practices. What what you as a manufacturer should be doing to make sure that you're making products the way they're supposed to be, that your manufacturing processes are under control, and that you're making the same thing every time. That every time you make a product, you may make a hundred different products, but when you make any one of them, it's vitally important that you're making the same thing every single time. And that's what the, the regulations are designed to do. The regulations themselves, as we were talking about earlier, are fairly general. Um, they're an outline. At the time that FDA issued them, there were 700 pages of discussion of them in the Federal Reg Register, as opposed to 21 pages of actual regulation. So it's an involved process. It can be a lot of work to initially get set up, especially on the manufacturing end. I teach a course with one of the consulting companies I do a lot of work with uh, a couple of times a year. And throughout the course, we also say GMP means more than, more than good manufacturing practices. It, uh, GMP can mean giant mountains of paper, <laughs> uh, get more paper. Mm -hmm. But the philosophy is if it's not in writing, it didn't happen. Right. It's just a way of documenting that you're doing what you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And then from an unlabeled distributor perspective like you, your obligation is to understand what documents you need to see to assure yourself that the products are, that you have your name on are being made the way they're supposed to be. Right. One of the things that I often argue is that GMP compliance uh, and GMP as a, a whole isn't a marker necessarily of quality, but just compliance. How do you feel about that? It depends how you define quality. Mm -hmm. um, when I speak in this context about quality, mm -hmm. I'm not talking about whether you're buying the best protein powder on the market or not. Mm -hmm. uh, when I'm talking about quality, I'm talking about uh, a program that's in place to do, you know, what I've been saying. Uh, to verify and validate. Yes. Verify, validate to ensure that the product is being made the way it's supposed to be. Right. But as I've shared uh, so many times in my blogs and my videos, my grandfather had some wisdom from way back when I'll share with you. Um, he said, when I told him I wanted to be a pharmacist, he said that, oh, I used to make tablets for people when I was a kid, I would take rabbit droppings and paint them white and put an S on them and say that they were smart pellets. And when people said, oh, these taste like poop, he would say, well, you're getting smarter already. And as I've said lots of times before, you could take a crappy raw material and make it to specifications and be GMP compliant. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The consumers do need to educate themselves. Um, on, on what they should be looking for, what forms of what ingredients are most efficacious. And, and I'm not focused in that area when I'm trying to, to help my clients. Right. I, I'm focused in are you, get in compliance with the regulations. Because if you're in compliance with the regulations, if you're not in compliance with the regulations, if you don't know what you're doing, it doesn't matter what the starting material might be. Right. So... Do you have a, like a list of things that consumers should be thinking about when they think about supplements based on your experience? I have some real basic advice <laughs> because I think there's some things to look for right away to determine whether or not you should even keep the product in your hand or immediately put it back on the shelf or throw it in the garbage. Right. Because there's certain mandatory things on a label. Yeah. And if they're not there, that means whoever's selling the product can't even be bothered to put information the law says on the label. Forget about what's going inside the bottle. Right. Completely sleep at the asleep at the wheel. That's exactly what we say. If they can't get the label right, then that means that they're doing everything wrong. So consumers, every dietary supplement must have a statement of identity. And that can be as basic as herbal dietary supplement. Mm -hmm. And it's supposed to be on the principal display panel, the front panel, 
and it's supposed to say this is an herbal dietary supplement or this is a ginseng supplement mm -hmm. or this is a multivitamin. Mm -hmm. There's supposed to be a statement of identity. Mm -hmm. uh, there's supposed to be a net quantity of contents, 120 pills, 12.7 um, mm -hmm. grams, mandatory, not optional. There's no discretion. There's supposed to be a supplement facts box on the right side panel. If there's no, there's some exceptions for small formats, but as a general proposition, if you pick up a bottle that's the size of what you'd expect your multivitamins to be in, mm -hmm. and there's no supplement facts box on it, there's something screwy. Right. Uh, um, you know, and, and for any of you new listeners, what's the supplement facts box? Everyone knows the nutrition facts box. You pick up a box of cereal. You mm -hmm. can't mix it, miss it. Supplement Facts Box is the version of that information that's conveyed to consumers in a Nutrition Facts Box in the format that FDA has told us we need to do for dietary supplements. Every underneath that, on that same panel, underneath that Supplement Facts Box, there's supposed to be either an address or a phone number so the consumer can reach the company. And the address has got to be a real one. It's got to be a complete address. Mm -hmm. It just can't be Neil's Vitamins, Long Island, USA. <laughs> it, it has to be a real address. And if those things aren't on the product you're looking at, put it back. Right. I would say call 911 and run. About <laughs> somebody's trying to kill you. Um, yeah, and I even take it because I'm a real supplement geek. I, I know the size specifications for all of those different things. So if I look at a label and I see that they don't even follow the guidelines for how big those things should be, then I know that they're not paying attention to the minutia. So there's probably a lot missing there. Another piece is the claims. This is what I tell people to look for is that if you see a supplement and it's telling you improves memory or making these outrageous claims, um, that's normally a, a good sign that they're, they're not uh, really following the regulations as they should either. My standard advice in that area mm -hmm. and is twofold. If the claim is too good to be true, mm -hmm. it isn't true. Mm -hmm. And if the product does something that it really shouldn't be doing, there's probably something in the product that shouldn't be there. Right. Bootleg Viagra and the male enhancement pills, right? That's exactly. <laughs> and, uh, that, uh, that's exactly it. I'm sorry. Your Yohimbi dietary supplement or your not nitrous oxide uh, enhancing dietary supplement isn't supposed to work like synephrodrol. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the thing with supplements, uh, you know, there may be some exceptions, but 99.9% .9 of the time, you see efficacy over the long term. Right. You don't take glucosamine, chondroitin, and any other joint supplement mm -hmm. and immediately say, wow, <laughs> this is amazing. My mobility is back. Right. That might happen, you know, a couple of, after a couple of days, prescription joint supplement products or a... Um, prescription pain, pain medicine yep. main medicine but i've used glucosamine uh, chondroitin at times and you don't you know after a month you might start feeling something but if you take your your that supplement overnight take that supplement you wake up in the morning uh, feeling like you've had a knee replacement i'd say stop taking that product <laughs> yeah reasonable expectations i think is a really great uh tidbit for the consumers. They should have reasonable expectations about dosing and uh, duration of effect and how long it'll take to work because we have uh, been sold this bill of goods about how quick and how great these supplements are. So we expect immediate results uh, because that's what people say. And this goes to CBD now. So let's bridge into CBD and talk about some CBD related quality issues. But what I'm seeing is that because it's such a miracle product and everybody's doing so well on it, grandmas and young kids and everybody, dogs. So everybody's expecting CBD to work for them and CBD to be easy for them, like they would get instant relief and such. So let's talk about those kinds of things. I think there's some basic things that we need to understand. Hemp, what is supposed to be the source of CBD, mm -hmm. is what we call industrial hemp. It is a, you'll correct me, I think it's a subgenus of the species of 
cannabis. Uh, cannabis, we all know, is marijuana. Right. Industrial hemp was only made legal in the United States, outside of the, the no, small number of states that had uh, uh, legalized it for research purposes, since the end of last year, since December of 2018, when the uh, what we everyone knows as the Farm Bill uh, was passed, and it opened up hemp farming in the United States. Uh, and the way it did that was by saying industrial hemp, which is extremely low THC containing uh, cannabis. Uh, and THC is the psychoactive ingredient that makes everybody um, fly to Colorado for vacation. Yes, I've done that a couple times. <laughs> all it did, all the Farm Bill did, was remove extremely low THC from the DEA, the Drug Enforcement uh, Administration's definition of marijuana extract. So it removed industrial hemp, took away all of the DEA issues, which now made it possible for hemp farmers. You know, everybody, you've seen hemp clothing, mm -hmm. you've seen hemp oil. It made it possible for the people who were engaged in that trade to actually do things like banking because they didn't, the banks didn't have to worry about DEA coming in and shutting them down for participation in uh, a controlled substance mm -hmm. trade. And that's all the Farm Bill did. It didn't say a word about FDA. Um, it didn't implicate how the FDA could regulate hemp products. It didn't say a word about how FDA can regulate constituents of the hemp plant like CBD. So that issue is still out there. And we can talk about some of those. They can be a little bit esoteric. But my question is, and actually the, the question was first put this at this basic level by my colleague Steve Shapiro. And he did it at the beginning of this month. We were at a natural products conference talking about the CBD marketplace. He raised the question, I'm walking the trade show floor. I'm going to my local deli. I'm going into CVS. Yeah. And I see... CBD brownies. I see CBD gummy bears. I see CBD oil. Mm -hmm. I see CBD cream. I see CBD vaping cartridges. And vaginal lubricants and Tootsie Rolls. And, and <laughs> you went where I didn't go. <laughs> but where is all of the CBD coming from? Right. I just actually used the, uh, the Magic Google. It's 90 days to grow a mature plant. So now, again, 90 days, even if they were, let's just assume every place in the U.S. had perfect weather. You know, we weren't dealing with winter in the Plains states or the Northeast. Mm -hmm. January 1, everybody had their seeds from verifiably low THC plants in the ground on January 1. So that means April for a mature plant. So now even let's say today, you know, as we're recording this, it's the end of May. Mm -hmm. So that means the mature plant, all harvested at the beginning of April, extraction, blending, dosing, all figured out and put into a flood of products on the market in 60 days. Where's all the CBD coming from? Well, I think that there are people that are using it from hemp plants in legal states. Is that... A legal thing to do or is that not allowed it depends on the state but for the most part even a year ago if you called up the department of agriculture in kentucky and said i'm interested in getting into the cbd trade with industrial hemp from your state you have a research exemption for the use of industrial hemp does that include research into how many consumers will buy cbd <laughs> i don't think so mark i don't think so so that's, I mean, so that's, uh, you know, I, I think that's uh, something that we need to be uh, concerned about. And I think that, and this will tie into the comments I made about um, exactly what the Farm Bill did. It, remember, it exempted very low THC cannabis. CBD is found in all forms of cannabis and can be extracted out of mm -hmm. all forms of cannabis. This isn't so much a consumer issue, but to the extent that we have anybody listening who is selling CBD, who doesn't have a program in place uh, to understand the provenance 
of where the material they're buying is coming from. But CBD extracted from cannabis that does not fit the definition of industrial hemp, that's still a controlled substance. Right. The idea that the farm bill even is just one piece of the regulatory picture. I think when you actually just did a a recent talk on CBD legality, that I think it would be interesting for the listeners to hear so they could understand how much of a mishmash mess it is. I, I say crap show, but you know, you said mess in your presentation. The FDA, FDC, Bureau of Narcotic Enforcement, DEA, like just paint that picture for everybody. It, it's relatively straightforward at the federal level, Neil. Mm-hmm. Um, DEA, uh, let's, we'll assume now, uh, for purposes of our conversation, everybody understands that they need to make sure that their CBD is coming from industrial hemp. Right. DEA is out of the picture. Right. They've got guns. We don't want them around. We don't want them around. They're out of the picture. We don't have to worry about them coming in um, and seizing your Bentley and yacht (laughs) and your brand new house on the Gold Coast of Long Island that you were able to buy with your CBD profits. (laughs) Um, They're gone. They're out of the picture. The concern on the federal level is that the Food and Drug Administration, FDA, has said CBD is not a lawful ingredient or food in food or dietary supplements. And there are multiple layers to this problem. The top level, the top level is a drug approval granted a company called GW Pharma for a product called Epidiolex. It's CBD based. It's currently approved for treatment of childhood seizures. And it, from what I understand, is an amazing breakthrough product. Yeah, it's huge. But Epidiolex, according to FDA, was approved before anybody lawfully called out CBD as an ingredient in food or dietary supplements. And it's not just that we ate hemp. The, the, the question uh, for F, from FDA's purpose is, did you eat CBD, not mm-hmm. did you eat hemp? Mm-hmm. And did you eat CBD lawfully? Meaning, on, a food, on the food side, does it satisfy and is the proper work done to demonstrate that it satisfies a standard of generally recognized as safe? Mm-hmm. Um, and on the on, on the supplement side, whether anybody submitted to the agency um, what we call a new dietary ingredient notification, showing that the ingredient is reasonably expected to be safe. And that's a slightly lower standard that, than the general recognition. And even beyond that problem of the drug approval, there's a part of the law that says you can't put something into food that was first publicized, that we first became aware of when it was there was publicity, public announcements that it was being studied as a drug. So that's that's another level of problem that we have at the federal level. On the state level, I'll go with you. It's a it's a poop show. <laughs> um, it is a mishmash. We have some states that have conformed their drug laws to match what we have in the farm bill to exempt industrial hemp and therefore anything derived from it uh, from treatment as a controlled substances. We have some states that haven't. Idaho, CBD is a controlled substance. And, and that's just one that comes to, uh, to mind off the top of my head. Um, Indiana, it seems to depend on which side of the bed the attorney general has woken up uh, in the morning. Texas, it depends what county you're in on the controlled substance size. On the FDA side, uh, we have states that are saying, we know FDA really isn't doing enforcement against CBD unless the products are making crazy claims, like cures Alzheimer's disease. We've seen that. Mm -hmm. Um, So FDA is saying, as long as we're not seeing crazy claims and we're not aware of a public uh, health issue, we're going to make sure consumers understand and we're warning industry, we don't think this is the lawful ingredient, but we have other priorities. Right. Some of the states are saying, we know FDA can't deal with this issue, but we have our own mini Food and Drug Act laws on the books. We're going to enforce FDA's position. 
Mm -hmm. So maybe you can you can sell all the hemp you want. You can sell all the hemp oil you want. Um, you probably can put CBD in uh, in topicals as long as you don't uh, talk about what the CBD does because that'll magically convert your cream into a into a drug. Mm -hmm. um, and and and, and re remind me, well, I'll, I'll, I'll circle back to that in a second because it's mm -hmm. important for people to understand. And, and, and we have states saying, we're pulling it off the shelves if it's in food or supplements. We have always, and, and we even have within the states different disparate uh, treatments. New York City is in, and, and Los Angeles County are enforcing the FDA position. I'm not aware of any other area within those two states that are saying we're following FDA's advice to the letter. So it, it, it is a mess uh, on the state level. We have other jurisdictions where these are usually under uh, the authority of the Department of Pharmacy, mm -hmm. um, where the Department of Pharmacy investigators are going in and sampling what products labeled as uh, CBD supplements and testing them. And if there is any amount of THC found, because the Farm Bill says less than 0.3% THC and you're good. We have other states that are saying the only acceptable level of THC is zero, none detected. Yeah. And if your CBD product has even any detectable amount of THC in it, we're treating it as a controlled substance and you're off the shelf. So the states are a poop show. It is a mess. It is a legal mess. And when people say, oh, it's legal or, oh, it's illegal, like that is not a black and white conversation to have and it shows that they actually don't understand the nuance to the whole thing that's that's what i use as a a uh, quality measure myself is if the brand if i say to the brands is this legal and they go yes then i i you know i go yeah you don't know what you're talking about yeah absolutely i mean i you know if you ask that question it's kind of hard to come up with a good answer to you um but if you say look i'm interested in cbd i, I want to i'm i'm willing to put my brand on it i understand the situation i want to gauge your understanding i would certainly expect the response fda has taken the position that it's not a lawful ingredient we understand the hemp trade is disputing that and that we feel as long as we are making a quality product we're not making crazy claims you're free to come to our facility and take a look at our manufacturing operations and understand where we're sourcing the hemp i would think that that's the kind of company you would say yeah i'm interested when can i come out and we should talk about me letting you put my brand on your product with an understanding of all the caveats about the marketplace right so you had said that you wanted to loop back about the magic transformation that some CBD products are undergoing. Um, and it's not just CBD products. It, it's actually a concern to anyone in, in the supplement trade. And it goes back to the statute that allows everybody to be in business, the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. And it's kind of unique as a regulatory outline and different from just about every other place in the world because everything that we talk, we're talking about turns on the, how the statute defines what is a drug. And that has nothing to do in the first instance with what the molecule is, how it was discovered, how it was made. It has everything to do with the definition of drug as any product, substance, anything intended to treat, cure, prevent, or mitigate disease in man or other animals. And it's that word intent. So the first thing that our regulator looks at is what do you say about your product? So we can take, let's talk about the CBD moisturizing. Yes. We can take the CBD moisturizing cream and we can market it as CBD moisturizing cream. There's some technical, highly technical legal questions about why you're calling out CBD if all it is is marketing cream, but we'll accept that nobody really has enforced that part of the law for a very long time. So if I have my CBD moisturizing cream and then in my directions or even on the front panel, I tell you anytime your arthritic, your arthritic knees, you know, CBD arthritis relief moisturizing cream, mm -hmm. I have now magically converted 
my moisturizing cream into an unapproved new drug because I'm showing my intended use of my product is as an arthritis pain reliever. So it's what you say about your product. So right off the bat, again, this goes to you know con consumers, what they should be looking for, crazy claims. When it comes to these topicals, any claim basically that the CBD does anything converts the product into an unapproved new drug, and it's showing you that the marketer really doesn't care about that. Right, doesn't care about the basic laws, right? Um, so with the supplement industry, Mark, what needs to get fixed right now? Like what are the biggest gaps that we need to fix from a quality perspective? We need to get the scoff laws out of the trade. Yesterday, FDA, actually FDA didn't even announce it. The Department of Justice announced an action to shut down a dietary supplement manufacturer on Long Island, uh, seeking an injunction prohibiting them from continuing to sell supplements because of persistent failure uh, of their GMP systems, uh, consistently having no idea what they were making. And when you read the complaint that was filed in federal district court, you say, my God, this company was first cited in 2011. Mm. And they have consistently been out of compliance. They have demonstrated they don't care. And it took the federal government eight years to say, we need to take these, these products off of the market. Yeah. There's a fundamental failure, and it cuts across administrations of both parties. There is a fundamental failure at the Food and Drug Administration to take these issues with supplements seriously and it hurts the trade and it hurts consumers and we should all be saying fda do your job enforce the laws it's written stop complaining stop saying we need a reboot of the law we need new powers uh, neil if you could make me fda commissioner for a day okay or even just give me a box of fda letterhead <laughs> I will show you how we can clean up that problem in the supplement industry. One box of FDA letterhead and overall quality, this overall concern uh, with what's going on in the supplement industry, we can take care of. The agency just does not want to do its job. Gotcha. And I mean, they do have a wide scope of things that they're in, in charge of, but when it comes to supplements, it kind of, it seems to be a lot of wrist slapping, but nothing crazy. I just remember we did an article about the Alzheimer's claims and the FDA action against that. And it seemed like just the sternly written letters was about the extent of it. Like they didn't shut anybody down or anything like that or find them. They just said, hey, don't do this. Well, they, they wrote those letters, Neil. Um... And, and and then they did a great big dog and pony show announcing their new enforcement initiatives. Mm -hmm. And if you go back and you look at the first warning letters uh, um, after Deshay was passed, after the, the the specific part of the law under which the industry exists uh, uh, was passed, um, 25 years ago. If you look at the warning letters for Alzheimer's claims, yeah. um, you'll see they say the exact same thing as this brand new fresh enforcement enforcement initiative uh, fda has been telling the trade for 25 years you can't make alzheimer's claims for your cognitive function supplements and and the response 25 years later is still to send a as you say a strongly worded letter right so we let's say i go to the fda i happen to steal some letterhead and i give it to you and you've written all your letters what does a successful supplement industry look like Oh, these people who had the demonstrated scoff laws disappear. Mm -hmm. What is the scoff law? Uh, the company that has been told repeatedly you're out of compliance um, and, and demonstrated they don't care. They don't even want to try. Got it. So they're, oh, I gotcha. They're, oh, they're, out, they're out of compliance because my letter says, here's your list of violations with a carbon copy to the local U.S. attorney um, to be followed with requests for criminal prosecution the stakeholders everybody their family cannot open another supplement company again because of what they've been involved in right right we have we have multiple levels you can be the fda has the authority with the assistance of the u.s attorney 
you get injunctions as you described. I think we can leave your listeners with this thought. Mm -hmm. At FDA's discretion, and they do need the help of the local U.S. attorney, every violation of the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, and that includes making unauthorized drug claims and includes ignoring good manufacturing practices, but every violation of the Food and Drug Act is a criminal violation. And the Supreme Court has said if those violations are prosecuted as misdemeanors, their strict criminal liability attaches, which basically means the government's burden consists of proving that the defendant wasn't in a coma <laughs> when, they, when they violated the act. And the agency almost never uses this power. And I would submit to you and to your audience that if people had a legitimate fear of prosecution if they ignored the rules, a lot less of them would be doing that. Right. That's like the old argument, string up a few bankers that are stealing from our 401ks and, and that white collar crime will stop. So what do we have to look forward to? What are some good things that are happening in the supplement industry that you're proud of? I'm proud of the the overall uh, quality trend. I mean, we've been focusing on the problems because of the, the risk that they pose, but I'm proud of the turnout that I see at these seminars where I teach GMPs. I'm proud that the majority of the industry is responsible, um, and I'm, I'm proud of the work that our trade associations do, um, especially on Capitol Hill, to try and keep the industry stable and um, encourage the kind of enforcement we've been talking about. All right. Well, Mark, thank you for all the good information. I hope I'm not getting billed for this time. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. And uh, I think I'll be looking to reach out to you in the future for more discussions like this. I'd be happy to. All right. Thanks, Mark. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye-bye. It's always good to be able to sit down and chat with a lawyer and not get charged for it, if you know what I'm saying. So as I pointed out in, in the conversation, it's so hard to be critical, yet be seen as an advocate, you know? The biggest take home for me for what Mark said is that it's fine until it's not. You know, the poor compliance and the loosey goosey system is passable because we're just generally not aware as a society. But if something does bubble up to the top, it's going to be an explosion. And the idea of that future news article, you know, it's going to be saying, oh, the industry is lawless and unregulated. That future doesn't have to happen. So, uh, the best that we can do as consumers is just to demand transparency. If we had a glimpse of what's going on behind the curtain, we can make better decisions. But until then, just stay vigilant and maybe get a big mouth holistic pharmacist on your team. You know what I'm saying? If you want to reach out to Mark, visit RivkinRadler.com, R-I-V-K-I-N-R-A-D-L-E-R.com. And you can check out a bunch of his articles just by Googling his name or checking out our show notes. So thanks for tuning in again. Until we speak again, keep listening, keep learning, and be well.